Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, one and all, and welcome back to another week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio, right here on Republic Broadcasting. So welcome back to everyone, wherever you might be in the world tonight. It's great to be talking to you once again, and I think uh, you're going to be quite excited by the incredible list of guests I've got lined up for this week, and it is going to be a jam-packed week here on Corbett Report Radio. So before we get into tonight's uh, program and with tonight's guest, Let's go through some of the things that, uh, that we're going to be going through on the, the program this week. For example, tomorrow night, of course, will be Tuesday, November 22nd, 2011, depending where you are in the world. And Of course, I'm here in Japan, so it'll actually be the 23rd for me. But, of course, the 22nd of November will be marking the 48th anniversary of the coup d'etat that took place in Dallas, Texas that very day, of course, referring to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And so to mark that solemn occasion, we'll be having on as a guest uh, someone that I haven't talked to before on Corbett Report, so I'm excited to talk to him for the first time. His name is Chuck Ocelli, but you might better know him as the blind G- JFK researcher, and uh, he, he can be found at youtube.com slash blindjfk. So if you want to get ready for tomorrow night's interview, you can go check that out on his YouTube channel. He has uh, many, many, many uh, videos up there going through various aspects of the JFK assassination. And we're going to be touching on what I think is probably one of the most blatant uh, Achilles heels of the entire official story of the the assassination itself, which is uh, the story of Lee Harvey Oswald and who he really was and what he was really up to in, in Russia and all of that kind of shenanigans that preceded and set up the perfect patsy for the perfect plot, I suppose, if you want to put it in those terms. So once again, that's Charles Ocelli, uh, youtube.com slash blindjfk. Coming up Wednesday night, we have uh, a conversation with Lawrence McCurry, and some people might remember him. I did an interview with him from CorbettReport.com a few weeks ago, talking about uh, the Occupy Toronto protests, and he was there in the founding meetings of that that protest and some of the preliminary meetings that were going on, and he's been in attendance ever since, and uh, has just written a very interesting article on his blog called Who is Behind the Control of the Occupy Toronto Movement? And it's, uh, it's a very thought-provoking, very interesting article, so we're going to be talking about that, uh, well, somewhat contentious topic on Wednesday night, so if you want to prepare for that, you can go check out Lawrence McCurry's blog at canadaawakes.blogspot.com. That's all one word, canadaawakes.blogspot.com. And then coming up on Thursday night, we're going to be talking to Mark Russell, who uh, people might remember I talked to several months ago. Back in June, I talked to him. He's a professor of signals processing in Argentina. We're going to be having, I'm not sure what kind of discussion is going to be. I imagine a very, very wide-ranging discussion about consciousness and, and love and fear and control and all of those big, big topics that we like to delve into from time to time. So that's all coming up on the podcast on the broadcast this week, and of course Friday night will be Friday night highlights. But tonight I'm very excited to have a very very interesting guest with a really remarkable story that I hope that you've heard of before. But if not, I'd really suggest that you go and check it out for yourself. And you can do so by visiting our guest's website. Um, she has several, including Julia Davis News blogspot.com. That's Julia J U L I A davis d-a-v-i-s news.blogspot.com she can also be found at terrorwithindoc.com terrorwithin d-o-c all one word dot com and there you'll find the really remarkable story of julia davis a national security whistleblower who was 
falsely deemed a domestic terrorist and subjected to retaliation by the Department of Homeland Security. And when you hear the story tonight of what she went through, what her and her family went through, and what ultimately resulted from it, I think you're going to be pretty amazed, as I was when I first watched this uh, very interesting documentary. So when we come back from this break, we're going to be talking to Julia Davis, a national security whistleblower. So I hope you won't touch that dial, and you'll stay tuned for tonight's remarkable conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm excited to have you all here with me tonight for a very interesting conversation with a very, very interesting guest. And uh, I think once you hear about this really remarkable story, you're going to be uh, quite interested in it as well. So once again, I'll throw out the websites of tonight's guest, Julia Davis, so that you can go and explore it more fully on your own. It's uh, juliadavisnews.blogspot.com. Also, you can find information about the documentary that we're going to be uh, discussing in some detail tonight, The Terror Within, at terrorwithindoc.com. That's terrorwithindoc.com. And there you'll be able to find more information about tonight's guest. But, uh, but let me introduce a little bit about her and her case. And I'll take this from whistleblowers.org, which has this right up on her. It says, Julia Davis, while serving as a Customs and Border Protection Officer, fulfilled her duty of protecting American citizens from terrorism when she filed a report to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Joint Terrorism Task Force exposing serious shortcomings in the processing of aliens from terrorist countries. These aliens entered the U.S. on the 4th of July 2004, a date that was designated as a special date to watch in intelligence alerts that warned that members of al-Qaeda were planning to enter the U.S. on national holidays with special emphasis on Independence Day. And in in response to that filing of that report, what did she get? Not uh, not praise, not commendations, not promotion, but retaliation from the Department of Homeland Security and retaliation in just a really remarkable way. So I'm very interested to talk to tonight's guest. Julia Davis, it's great to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it is great to have you here to go through this very important case in some detail. But before we get into the details of of your case specifically, since this is your first time on the program, perhaps you can introduce yourself a little and tell us a little bit about your background. I I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and I've been in the U.S. for the last 17 years, and I'm a proud U.S. citizen, and I was always... um, dedicated to uh, serving this nation, which is now my home. And uh, one of the things that I always wanted to do was um, to work uh, for the government because I believe that my knowledge of um, foreign languages would would help, um, especially in the fight uh, against um, terror threats or any other threats, uh, foreign and domestic. And uh, in this uh, pursuit of... um, doing good things for this nation that embraced me, I went to work for the Department of Homeland Security as a Customs and Border Protection Officer, and that's um, where the story, that's where the story starts. Indeed, and a remarkable story it is. Um, So what year did you start with Customs and Border Protection? 
In 2002, I started to work for Department of Homeland Security. All right, so so set the scene for us a little and tell us a little bit about those first couple of years before this incident really started to take place. What what were they like and what was your general relations with the people there? I had uh, great relationships with everyone I worked with and I advanced uh, very quickly. I started to work in uh, the elite port enforcement team dealing with uh, cases that presented special interests deferred prosecutions, asylum cases, uh, terrorism-related cases, and um, it was in that department that I was promoted to a position of an acting supervisor. And um, until my disclosure, I received um, only outstanding performance evaluations and uh, had great relationships with um, my supervisors and port directors and um, haven't had any problems with... um, with my employment record um, until I did what was the right thing to do, and I still believe it was the only right thing to do, which was to make my report to the FBI. Indeed. Well, tell us a little bit more about that report and specifically what what you were bringing to the FBI's attention. We were receiving intelligence alerts that um, al-Qaeda members uh, were planning to penetrate the U.S.-Mexico borders through our land border uh, border crossings, and we received very specific alerts, and the uh, 4th of July was pointed out as a special date to watch uh, where this penetration was uh, very likely. And actually, in this recent raid on uh, Bin Laden's residence, uh, it was again confirmed that 4th of July was listed as one of the dates when um, possible terror attacks were being planned by al-Qaeda members, and um, so on that date, I was working as an acting supervisor. I came in, and uh, part of my duties was to go through the paperwork from the previous shift to put in all the cases into the database where statistics are being compiled, and when I started going through the paperwork, I was seeing one after another cases of aliens uh, from special interest countries, which are countries with terror ties being admitted into the United States. And we would normally get, at that port, 10 to 15 people from terror countries in the, an entire month period. And on this particular day, we had 23 within a short 10-hour period. So alarm bells were definitely going off in my head. And um, when I looked at the paperwork, I saw that most of their documents were not copies. Um, none of the steps that were required were followed. They were not enrolled in the NCIRS, which is a National Security Entry Access Registration Program. And um, they were pretty much just admitted into the United States without any special scrutiny, which uh, already didn't sit well with me, especially since we had very specific alerts. Um, so I took the paperwork and I went directly to the port director in charge of the port, and I asked him if he was aware of these entries. He told me that, no, he wasn't, and he told me I would just take it to Intel. Uh, and when I went to Intel, I was shocked to discover that on this date of such a paramount importance to the safety of the United States, there was not a single Intel officer on duty at our port, which is the largest and busiest land border crossing in the United States and in the world. 
Um, and when I went back to the port director and said, well, what do we do now? There's no one in Intel. He said, just put it in their intake box, and they'll get to it when they get back on duty next week. And I did exactly as I was ordered, but um, once I finished my shift and I was no longer under his orders as a private citizen, I felt that it was my duty to let the uh, FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force know that this entry had happened so that they could look into it. And uh, I called them, and they expressed um, a great interest in what I had to say. They asked me to file a written report that faxed to them the same night. And once they came in to, port, to our port to investigate these events and uh, port managers and agency heads at the, its highest levels found out the source of this um, disclosure, my life was never the same from that point on. Well, it's just absolutely unthinkable that you could be retaliated against for doing what really was not just your, your, your duty, but really just something that anyone, I think, in that situation would have done if they saw such a blatant um, opening in, in the defenses of the country. I think anyone would be compelled to, to let the, uh, the, the authorities know about that. I mean, it is absolutely incredible. So um, tell us about the report that you sent in. Was that a form that you kind of filled out, or was it something that you just wrote up and sent to the FBI by yourself? Um, they prepared uh, an intake form of their own, and then my report was just a report that I filled out on agency letterhead, and, and I submitted uh, the details, all of the events of um, the day in question that, that related to these entries. And uh, uh, what actually I think um, started the firestorm to such a level was um, when a former commissioner of the Customs and Border Protection, Robert Bonner, and he was doing a badge ceremony in San Diego. He was approached by Los Angeles Times journalists who asked him about Dewey Davis' report to the FBI. And the agency automatically assumed that I must have been the one that leaked this information, even though it wasn't me. And um, that's where all of the trouble started, because uh, Commissioner Bonner and his staff sent emails to local port managers asking them, uh, what what kind of investigations or what kind of dirt did they have on me so that they could respond to press inquiries. And they received an, a response, which I was able to later obtain copies of all of these communications in court proceedings. They received a response that I was not under investigation for anything and had no labor employee relation issues to report. So they decided to change that when commissioner's office told local court managers make sure that she is uh, held accountable for what she has done. And um, uh, by the, by within the two-year two period, they managed to initiate 54 investigations against me. And, um, and that included about 16 investigations within a two-week period. None of them related to 4th of July, which is the way the government likes to conduct its um, retaliatory investigations. They try to investigate you for all kinds of petty uh, things completely unrelated to your disclosure, therefore trying to make you look like a rogue uh, officer or someone that's not doing their job well. 
Absolutely incredible. And to think that you had a, a spotless record beforehand and then 54 investigations launched against you, 16 in a two-week period, it's just unthinkable unless, of course, this was a coordinated attempt to smear you, which it clearly was. And it's interesting to see how the, the government's immediate response to being questioned on a major security issue is to try to smear the person bringing it to their attention. And I think that must speak volumes about what's really going on here. So when did Immigration and Customs Enforcement get involved in this? Immediately. They were involved from the very beginning, and the, the, the same two agents were involved in every one of the 54 investigations against them. Um, absolutely incredible. Well, let's let's leave it there. Let's take a few minute break, but we'll be right back with Julia Davis, National Security Whistleblower, right after these these messages. Welcome back, friends. This is Corbett Report Radio, and of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Talking tonight to National Security Whistleblower Julia Davis. And again, one more information about her can be found at juliadavisnews.blogspot.com or terrorwithindoc.com. And tonight we're talking about the remarkable case of the retribution that the Department of Homeland Security enacted against her for attempting to blow the whistle on security, serious security uh, weaknesses in the border security of the United States. So, Julia Davis, let's continue where we left off. Right before the break, we were talking about the uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents. There were two specifically who were coordinating the, the retribution against you in this case. Well, let's talk about those agents and what, what they really started to do in the wake of your report. Yes, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement served as um, internal affairs over uh, Customs and Border Protection. So what started happening is after Commissioner Bonner's office uh, sold in no uncertain terms local managers that they wanted me investigated and they actually said that there was urgency in getting this handled as um, ICE agents um, Herbert Koffer and Jeffrey Deal later admitted under oath they were told that this matters were to be considered top priority and were to be given immediate attention and uh, custom, um, Customs um, and Border Protection Commissioner Robert Bonner's staff also prepared a, a list of um, an outline for what he wanted to tell the reporter. And in that list, it, it blatantly said that they want to change the reporter's focus from this case to the improvements that are being made to security on the border and to refute my case that they would um, refer to investigations that offer and deal were to conduct against me. So immediately this uh, campaign had started. I, re I, re I was served with um, notice to appear um, where I was interrogated for eight hours straight, which I think is longer than some murder investigations. And um, it was about such petty issues as whether or not I had uh, my cell phone with me at work, whether or not it was broken, what I was doing on during my unpaid leave. This were... Um, these investigations were conducted in such a manner that the, the writing was on the wall as to what was happening. I immediately knew uh, what was going on, and actually, this um, if this uh, eight-hour interrogation was uh, audio tape recorded, and I was later able to get this uh, tape from Department of Homeland Security. And on those tapes, 
Agent Deal told me, he said, I am your judge and jury. I'm going to judge you. And he called me a liar. He uh, yelled and screamed at me. And uh, it was pretty obvious that, that um, they were determined to do whatever they had to do to smear my name because their only way of uh, invalidating my disclosure was to discredit me personally. And that's what they were trying to um, say. And unfortunately, I suppose, doing doing as good a job as they can in such a, a heinous task. And as I understand, even while all of these investigations, these phony investigations and things into your alleged misconduct was going on, even at that time, you were still, as I understand, being considered as a possible FBI agent? Yes, that's true. Actually, um, and that was always my, my first. The goal was to be an FBI agent, and uh, when I applied for the FBI, I passed all the tests, and, uh, but at that point, I hadn't been in the United States for 10 years, and they have a very specific requirements about people who are naturalized citizens, so they told me that uh, I should try other federal agencies first, and then after that time um, that is required passes, then for me to reapply. And that's what I did. Once the, the time came, I reapplied to the FBI, and I actually received an offer of employment um, after these um, investigations were already in progress, which were um, obviously completely frivolous and baseless. So, yes, FBI had given me an offer of employment. Well, clearly, if the FBI is uh, is clearing you and vetting you for for working with them, I would imagine that the domestic terrorist label that uh, that the DHS was ridiculously trying to apply um, is really can be seen for the ridiculous nature that it is. But so so let's talk a little bit about how this started to change your life and the type of surveillance that you were uh, placed under after the DHS started to become involved with this. Yes, yeah, so right after these uh, first administrative investigations have started. Um, my husband and I have noticed that we're being followed, and also we we lived at the time at the in a beach house, and there was a building next door where we would see agents with binoculars watching us uh, from the building next door, and we would catch people peeking into our windows late at night. And we, we could we would see people following us and sitting next to us in restaurants and. Uh, placing a device that looks like a phone uh, where you could see that they were recording what we're talking about. And it was um, so bizarre that at the time we didn't even um, tell anyone except for um, uh, my employment um, discrimination attorney, which I had to retain once I saw where this was going because it was obvious that they were forcing me out of my job. So the attorney, uh, when we told him that, even he thought it was too outlandish, but he told us to just keep documenting it. And we, so we would photograph these agents following us. And um, funny enough, later, later on, they um, commented in their report that the targets are very surveillance heavy and have been photographing agents that are following them. Indeed, it all came out in the wash in the end. Well, let's leave it there. We'll take a few minute break, but we'll be right back with Julia Davis right after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com. And once again, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio right here on Republic Broadcasting. And tonight we're talking to Julia Davis, a national security whistleblower who was persecuted by the Department of Homeland Security for attempting to blow the whistle on serious uh, security weaknesses at the U.S. border. And it is truly remarkable what she went through. And we were getting into just some of that, uh, just a hint of that before the break. We're talking about the the surveillance and the wiretaps and all of the the other things that she was subjected to. Um, both her and her husband, her family, were subjected to in the wake of her tr- attempting to blow the whistle. Um, and then, uh, as I understand it, it it only got more insane from there with uh, reconnaissance of of her residence by fixed wing airplane and. And all sorts of other things that culminated in, uh, well, a, a raid that just has to be heard about to be believed and unfortunately was not covered by any of the, the mainstream media. So you might be hearing about it for the very first time right here. But Julie Davis, let's start to get into the, the incredible details of this uh, remarkable raid on your re- residence. Hey, James. After I saw that, that these investigations were meant to get me out of my workplace, I had um, I had involuntarily resigned, and I filed a case against the Department of Homeland Security because what they were doing to me was clearly illegal, uh, as um, employment discrimination. And um, uh, I uh, prevailed in that lawsuit against Homeland Security, and the judge had found that their conduct was in, indeed illegal, and they had subjected me to uh, harassment to such a point that I was forced to resign involuntarily. And um, finally I thought that, okay, I have won this case. Now I can put all of this behind me. I can uh, go forward with my FBI employment, which I had already received the letter of employment. I thought my life was getting back to normal at that point. But only two weeks after I had won this lawsuit against Homeland Security, uh, they had landed a Black Hawk helicopter at our home in the Palm Springs area, and they stormed the house with uh, 27 agents uh, clad in uh, in black um, uh, SWAT team gear with assault weapons that had uh, stormed the house from all directions. And uh, we were not at home. My husband and I were not at home, but my parents were, and uh, my um, elderly parents certainly had... Uh, never expected uh, in their wildest dreams that anything like this would happen of all places, especially in America. And my dad actually at first thought that this um, was some kind of a military helicopter and that they had some kind of technical difficulties and that they may have been um, on the verge of crashing. He never expected anything like what would happen. When my dad um, came out of the house to see what was going on, these uh, agents had uh, stormed him and uh, threw him face down on the cement, uh, and they threw him down so hard that they broke uh, one of his fingers and handcuffed him. And in the meantime, he's uh, uh, yelling to them, what is going on? What is going on? And, and uh, the only response that they would give him is, your daughter, Julie Davis, is a domestic terrorist. That was the only response that he was getting. And um, my dad um, had a, a heart condition, and they knew about it. Um, as it later turned out that they, before the raid, they pulled up my parents' immigration files because I brought my parents here as an American citizen. And so um, in the process of immigration, they had my parents' medical records. 
So they knew very well that my dad had a heart condition, and they they dragged him away from the house and sat him in the full desert sun. It was at least 114 degrees, and he's wearing nothing but his boxer shorts. His tank top is uh, in the dirt, being held down by these agents. They're telling him his daughter is a terrorist, and uh, they had uh, literally terrorized um, my parents uh, and uh, without giving them any logical explanation for what was going on. And uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, they were ransacking the house. Um, they were turning it upside down. They were pulling out drawers, opening cabinets, looking under mattresses, anything and everything imaginable. But the interesting thing is they never had a search warrant. And this also later came out, and the federal judge, Virginia Phillips, was quite appalled by the illegal search that they had conducted because the agents not only did what they did, but they also took pictures of themselves opening drawers and cabinets. They had documented their illegal acts themselves. And uh, unfortunately, our system is set up in such a way that none of them were held accountable for their illegal acts or even disciplined. You know, Julia, as a as a red-blooded, liberty-loving human being, I am absolutely enraged by every aspect of this story and everything that was done to you and your family as a result of your attempting to, to blow the whistle on, on these security uh, loopholes. And, and nothing about this enrages me more than the way that your father was treated in all of this. And I, I find it quite quite disgusting, actually, that the way he was treated. Tell us a little bit more about, about his condition and what he was going through at that time. Yes, he was um, having a heart attack from from everything that he was being subjected to. He was uh, obviously in shock from what was going on and already having had a heart condition. Um, it was uh, magnified by, by this event. You can only imagine anyone with a heart condition being subjected to this kind of treatment. It's pretty much guaranteed that they, they would uh, have uh, health complications and my dad was having a heart attack, and he was telling the agents that were next to him. And my dad spoke very spoke English very well. He he told them in clear English, "I'm having a heart attack. I need to take my medication." So he had his um, heart medications inside the house, and he asked the agents repeatedly, "I need to take my medications. I need I need some water." Um, and my mother, who was inside the house, held down, also face down, and handcuffed by other agents, she was crying and uh, screaming, saying, my husband has a heart condition, please bring him in, he needs his medicine, please bring him in. It was extremely hot. And uh, uh, their reaction, they, they laughed at my dad. And they, they stood in the same place and they just laughed at him. And they would not uh, bring him into the house until after they finished uh, um, their illegal search. And when they finally brought him in, they still set him down, handcuffed, and they still would not let him take his medications until um, over an hour had um, had gone by when they finally took the handcuffs off, and he was uh, he had barely made it to his room to to take his heart medications. And uh, as I later found out from um, the doctors that had treated my dad. He had a, because he had an untreated heart attack and um, didn't get the oxygen that that is so urgently needed. Half of his heart tissue died um, on that day, and uh, 
his heart had never recovered. His condition had gotten progressively worse after that, and he had he died at the age only 61, and uh, this was um, uh, something that could could never be um, forgiven. That was, uh, I believe, um, very intentionally done because they hit me uh, where it hurt the most. They knew how close I was with my dad during their surveillance. They saw us. Uh, doing things together, going places together. They saw how extremely close they were. We were, and and so I think this was very much a premeditated attack at, at uh, hurting you the, the way they, they could hit you where it really hurt. And uh, let me just give you my condolences for that, that your terrible tragedy. And again, just my absolute disgust at the way you were treated, and demonstrably so. I mean, let's let's flesh that out for people because the DHS demonstrably knew about your father's condition before the raid was conducted. Yes, absolutely. They uh, the discovery in court uh, documents had uh, uncovered their communications where they talked about deporting my parents. And there was obviously no legal or valid reason to, to deport them, but this was just a um, multi-pronged attack where they just planned to destroy our entire family. And they had uh, specifically pulled up my parents' immigration files. They had their, their files in their entirety and uh, their medical records. And uh, they also knew um, that this was going to be an extremely hot day and in the memos to themselves and their reports, they wrote that if the extreme heat is expected and make sure to carry water and hydrate regularly. So they, they thought about this for themselves. And they also had an EMT. One of the agents was an EMT and he provided absolutely no medical care, much less not even uh, water or even uh, letting my dad take his own medication when they had all the tools and all the knowledge in their disposal and they intentionally did the opposite. Again, there are just no words for, for situations like this. And um, uh, let's move on to the to the uh, legal, I guess, uh, the rulings that came out of this. What, what ultimately eventuated from this in court? In uh, administrative court, uh, it was confirmed that my resignation was involuntary and it was caused, caused by impermissible discrimination and illegal conduct by Department of Homeland Security. And then um, this raid uh, was uh, prompted by the filing of um, uh, two separate cases uh, where the government had filed criminal cases against my husband and I um, in their continued attempts to, um, to retaliate against me. And um, both of these uh, cases and all of the charges were dismissed, and the court also found that uh, my husband and I were factually innocent, and the court entered an order for the government to return the proceeds of their warrantless searches, which actually there was more than one. They had uh, searched our home and also my husband's um, office at the, the film studios that, that he had across Paramount, and... Um, they had uh, completely ignored this court order and haven't returned um, the items that they had essentially stolen from our home and from our office. And uh, let's see, they, then there was um, another order by federal judge Virginia Phillips before the federal litigation against the Department of Homeland Security was um, um, settled, which I think uh, 
greatly contributed to why the government was ready to settle after this decision. But the judge uh, said that federal agents had committed an abuse of process, that they had uh, conducted a warrantless search, and that the, the nature of the raid was extreme. It was not proper, that the degree of force that was used was uh, extremely severe, that the designation me as a domestic terrorist was baseless and inappropriate. And actually, um, showing you a little bit of the mentality of the raiding agents, when they raided the house uh, and they came into the office, um, we have our computers set up, two computers in our office, and we have a calendar with um, our dates hanging there in the office. So the agents took a um, black pen and they crossed out the date uh, that they were raiding the house, the date of the raid, and they wrote boo on it. Um, and uh, I guess they thought that this was funny, so... While my dad is out there having a heart attack and they're raiding a house and searching it without a warrant, this is what they they thought to do is to write boo on my calendar. And um, so it, then the judge also found that, that uh, ICE agents had uh, an ulterior impro improper motive, that their motive was a retaliation for my uh, litigation against Homeland Security and for my um, uh, disclosures against them. And uh, that the uh, judge also acknowledged the prior order that, that found that um, uh, the decisions uh, were in my favor and were very critical of Department of Homeland Security and its components, uh, customs, and um, border protection, as well as immigration and customs enforcement. And they found that, that um, uh, they conducted, engaged in all of these activities, um, and that their motives were retaliatory and malicious and were an abusive process. Well, just a remarkable story and one that would scarcely be believable if it wasn't documented in, in those court rulings like that and if it wasn't also documented on camera and indeed the, the Black Hawk helicopter raid and parts of what transpired there was captured on camera and although, of course, it's never been played on any mainstream news outlet, it is, of course, available in that documentary that I mentioned earlier, The Terror Within, again, at terrorwithindoc.com. Tell us a little bit about the documentary. The documentary actually uh, was uh, made possible largely because um, one of our neighbors, Matthew Judd, uh, when he heard the sound of the helicopter outside, um, he decided to pick up a camera and start filming. So he came out of his house and he started filming the helicopter landing and all the agents running around the house. And um, he knew that they noticed him. And actually on camera, he said, oh, no, they saw me. He backed into the house, and he continued filming through the window of his house. And uh, um, he was very apprehensive. He was very nervous uh, about the fact that, that they noticed him filming them. He um, gave uh, us a sworn statement, and he also had given us the tape with uh, much fear and hesitation, um, and um, only weeks after he had given us the tape, he was found dead in his home. And that death to date has still never been adequately explained because he was only 25 years old and there was no no, uh, no reason for him to, to die this young. And um, the, all of the events um, of um, these last several years um, 
we just felt like um, the only way to change things in America is really make sure that that uh, the public knows that this is going on. And uh, uh, the book that I'm writing, as well as partial title of our documentary, is Until It Happens to You, because literally until it happens to you, most people couldn't imagine that this was even possible. And it shouldn't be possible, especially in the United States. Um, you know, we, we go around the world telling other countries how to conduct their business, and we should make sure that our own constitution is being upheld. So we were motivated by that uh, to, to bring about changes by telling, telling people about what happened, and most importantly, because the, the highest court of all is the court of public opinion. So this is where we really wanted to have this matter be heard and tried because uh, the legal system, have, we had um, prevailed um, after many trials and tribulations, but uh, in the end, even though we prevailed, no one from the agency was disciplined or even investigated, so the main perpetrators were not even investigated or questioned about what they have done. And uh, so uh, the sense of justice is quite hollow because of that. Hollow indeed. If there is any more fitting indictment of the police state that America has become than this story, I don't know what it is. Just an absolute travesty of justice on every level. So, a remarkable story, and let's just take a couple of moments to regroup our thoughts. We'll be right back with more on Corbett Report Radio, right after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to the final minutes of Corbett Report Radio for this Monday night edition. And tonight, of course, our guest has been Julia Davis with her remarkable story that, again, is documented in The Terror Within, a documentary that you can find out more about, including watching the official trailer at terrorwithindoc.com. That's all one word, terrorwithindoc.com. And I'd like to throw it back to Julia for the last few minutes to tell us a little bit more about about where people can find out about her story and her work and her forthcoming book. But before we do that, I understand that we have a caller on the line. So let's go to Jeff from Idaho. Uh, Jeff, do you have a comment about tonight's conversation? Hi. uh, Thank you for taking my call. I'm so sorry to hear about this tragic loss of your father. This is truly Gulag Archipelago in the United States. And, uh, you know, my studies have shown that, you know, the United States is under, uh, you know, military or dictatorship since uh, March of 1861. I would try and sue the government for wrongful death of your father because in any operation, like a helicopter operation like this that would be normal, they would come in in the morning at 2 or 3 a.m. when everyone is sleeping. They wouldn't do it in the dead of the, the heat in the, the afternoon except to exacerbate your father's condition. So it looks like this is truly an intimidation tactic to truly ruin your father's health. And I'm I'm really sorry sorry to hear about that. Do you have any? Uh, uh, I I will look at your website soon. But uh, do you have any thoughts on trying to file a wrongful death suit uh, on your father's case? We actually um, did. That was raised in one of um, the um, causes of action and what we sued the government for. And uh, that was another reason why they uh, rushed to settle because they couldn't afford to have a jury hear this. Uh, because um, my father was um, a completely innocent victim of uh, this right. uh, brutality. Right. 
Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear this, but uh, we need to get your message out. And uh, I, I appreciate the time that you could let me talk, and I'll let you finish up. Thank you very much for your time, and continue your hard work. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for calling in. Well, absolutely. As as you can see, people really are concerned about this case, and as well they should be, because it really does speak to the very heart of what's going on in, in the United States these days, which has long since been taken over by the, the real terrorists who are unfortunately infested in the highest levels of government and can use their their powers to intimidate and harass ordinary citizens and people trying to do just their duty in, in trying to close security loopholes and things like that, which obviously the government doesn't want done. So your story is very remarkable and very important for, for all of the things that it, it exposes. So once again, tell us about how people can find out more about this case. Um, our website for the documentary is uh, terrorwithindoc.com, and also um, you could uh, look it up on the Internet Movie Database, which is um, imdb.com, and you can do a, a search by title. And um, that's where um, everyone could, um, could come and uh, read more about the case. And also I write um, articles as Los Angeles Homeland Security Examiner, which um, you could find by Googling uh, Homeland Security Examiner Julia Davis. And... Um, that in a nutshell is how people could learn more and uh, we're looking forward to the release of the documentary in the beginning of 2012 to make sure that the truth is no longer a secret. That's right, and uh, you've also done writing and work for for other outlets, including, of course, your affiliation with Sibel Edmonds, SpoilingFrogsPost.com, which I'm also affiliated with, and we've uh, we've talked before, for example, on our video about uh, NGOs and their foundation funding. So, so tell us about some of the other work you've done. I'm working in the, the film industry. I'm writing uh, two books because um, uh, I think it's very important for all Americans to realize that, that the powers to fight against terrorism are being used against American citizens. So in my books, I will be talking about how to spot and deal with surveillance and monitoring and uh, also the effect of uh, what uh, actions could have the government designate you as a domestic terrorist. Well, a very important subject. We're going to have to leave it there. We're fresh out of time. Julie Davis, thank you, and thank you all for listening.